bet they're really getting confidence now. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Cuddy and the Cooge. This is a long-anticipated episode for me personally. We've had this guest spoken about in many of our previous episodes by, I would say, basically all of our guests have brought up this name, and um, it's where I spent most of my childhood Christmases, (laughs) and... uh, as per usual, I'm going to turn it over to Cuddy to introduce our guest for today. All right. Thanks, Cooge. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is a very special guest for me. And, and as you mentioned, uh, anybody in the basketball world out there knows this name by heart. Um, and certainly it's, it's an honor for us to have him with us today. So I'd like to welcome uh, Coach Tim Gergerich. And Coach Gerg and I go way back and is... Uh, as the Cooge said, uh, Gerg, I, you know, in, in all of our episodes, I've been talking to a lot of people throughout my career uh, that have been influential, and, uh, and certainly you're one of those, and I'll, I'll get on that. I want to dwell on that in a minute, but anyway, welcome. I, I'm, I'm so glad you're here, and it's great to hear your voice and see your face, and tell us how you've been doing. Coach Jerry Kowalski, I haven't heard Cuddy in a long time. <laughs> I haven't heard that word in a long time, and uh, it's great to hear. It brings a lot of joy to me because I remember when you came to UNLV in 1982-83. That's and correct. We were a walking disaster, our team. <laughs> and uh, it's a man by the name of Brad Rothermill who preceded yep. you, West Virginia guy. Uh, yeah. And he brought, he brought you definitely into uh, UNLV right after he came. And it's a great That's correct. That he ever did for himself and for us. Well, I appreciate it. And I and again, going back, Gerg. Um, well, first of all, let me go way back. This is kind of funny, and I've told you this story before. But you know, for our listeners out there, you know, Coach Gerg started at at Pitt. Was you know a Pittsburgh guy. Uh, played at Pitt back in the '60s. Um, led his team to a couple postseason tournaments. Then became an assistant at Pitt for six for like nine or ten years, right, Gerg, under Coach Timmons and Buzz Riddle, right? Correct. Yep. And then uh, in I know in seventy three seventy four, I remember watching that watching the game that you guys played against because uh, you that year you won twenty two in a row, and then you lost to North Carolina State, and they had David Thompson and somebody else. They had another good, really good player. Um, and you lost to those guys, I think, that night, right? Yeah, we lost to them in uh, what they would call right now the Elite Eight. Uh, yes. The NCAA tournament. And uh, the greatest thing about back then, we played on their home floor in the Elite Eight. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> they were worried about making money back then, too, <laughs> like they are now. <laughs> they were a great team. They, you know, they went on to uh, – now they were spectacular. David Thompson, of course, was, you know, whatever we have right now in the way of a, a great player, he was that. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, so then after your assistant days, though, this is where I kind of come in because you went 
you became the head coach at Pitt. And I was a, you know, total idiot in high school at the time. <laughs> and I used to come to the games at Morgantown at the Coliseum and I used to scream at you and yell at you and cuss you out there <laughs> like a good old Mountaineer fan did. And, you know, cause our listeners, you know, Pitt in West Virginia is like, you know, oil and water. I mean, they don't mix and everybody hated everybody. <laughs> and I always remember that when I came to, to UNLV, uh, the first time I met you, I'm like, man, should I tell this guy that I used to cuss him out a few years ago? <laughs> but, uh, but, but moving forward, Gerg, you know, you're right. When Brad brought me to, uh, to UNLV uh, in 1982, it, it was kind of a mess. It was a mess for me in a sense that I just got married. You know, Annette had never been out of Iowa. Uh, we're moving to Las Vegas, and here we are. I mean, literally the two of us all by ourselves. And of course, she comes from a family of seven. And, and I always had, you know, big family around me around the holidays. And I never will forget, uh, at that time, if you remember, I had to work football and basketball. So I really never got into the basketball season until, you know, I would come by and stuff. But I really never got into it till football was over. And so we were going into that first Christmas. and. Uh, and, and you, you just out of the clear blue sky, you know, came up to me and said, hey, kid, you know, I'm having I have this get together over my house. And you lived uh, at, at your in, by Chaparral High School. And so I go home and tell my wife, I'm like, hey, Coach Gergerich invited us over to his house for Christmas. And, you know, we really should go because we don't know anybody. And we were going to literally it would be me and Annette having Christmas together. And so we came to your house and. That really kind of, you know, was the start, of course, a long friendship between you and I, but really kind of introduced us to the Las Vegas world. So I've always been appreciative of that. And then as Megan said, or the Cooge, <laughs> you know, that, that became our traditional Christmas for the whole time yeah. that, that we were together. So that was very, very special. You were my childhood Santa. Uh, yeah, the one that almost fell off the roof. Yeah. Yep. You all. You sure did. You know what's funny about that, uh, Coach Jerry, is that the year before you came, again we weren't we weren't very good. We weren't playing well, and no one invited anybody anywhere. So my wife Cass said, "Why don't we have everybody come over, man? Everybody's sad, depressed." So that was the start. <laughs> we were all kind of hiding, hiding out. Coach Tart came. Uh, Tate Slock was one of our sisters, Mark Workington. And uh, I'll never forget, I had all these old T-shirts that I had probably from back at Pitt. <laughs> and that's what I gave away to everybody for a Christmas present. <laughs> there were shirts from all different colleges all over the world. But anyway, <laughs> yours was the second year. At least we were a little more happier. We were a pretty good team that year. I can remember we won what, about 24 in a row, something like that. Yep. And uh, that was kind of the start of uh, one heck of a run for you. I mean, uh, you might have had the best 10-year run in the history of the game. Yeah. Well, I must say, too, the gifts got better than T-shirts as the year went on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the one thing uh, – Chair that we all appreciated was, you know, they put up a lot of signs right now when you go to different places. 
this builds culture, this builds foundation, this builds this or that. And it's really the people that builds anything. And to me, UNLV basketball uh, at that time, it was built by the people. We, we never had any signs up. The only sign we had up at the practice facility was to cover the clock. So the coach could yeah. have four or five hour practices, but that <laughs> you know, we built everything with the people that were there. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how it started and that's how it finished. Yeah. No, no question, Gerg. I mean, uh, you know, when I first got there, you know, the athletic training room was really, you know, just very, very, uh, benign, if you will. Um, you know, the facilities weren't great. As you know, we had the North gym and, and, and we, we had Tim Wilson on and, you know, Tim, uh, as a guest and, you know, Tim really was the first strength coach that UNLV hired, um, you know, full time, if you will. And so it was kind of just, you know, starting from the ground up and, you know, going back to that first Christmas at your house, I remember, you know, and I didn't really know a lot of people, but I remember being in the kitchen and all the coaches, you guys were all in your kitchen. And I remember Coach Tark saying, you know, gosh, you know, hey, guys, we really got to crank it up this year. You know, I think we could be pretty good. But if we're not, you know, we may not have a job next year. And, uh, and of course, I had just gotten there, so I really didn't know what that all was about. And then that year, like you said, you know, February 14th of 1983, um, we were the number one team in the country for the first time in the history of the school. So it, you're right. It, there was just a lot of good people and, you know, everybody pulled together and kind of, you know, build the success as we went on. And like for me, man, those 10 years were the greatest years of my career. No question. You know, you brought up something really important, Jerry, about you mentioned Tim Wilson and strength and conditioning programs. We just called them weight programs back then. There were hardly any schools in the country that had any kind of strength and conditioning for basketball. It was Tim was brought in for football and thank goodness uh, he gave us the time also. And back, uh, you're, you're talking about the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I can't remember lifting a weight as a player and maybe at the end of my career there, we did it a little bit, but the trainers, the trainers were all responsible for that. We had no weight, weight program and no weight coaches. And, uh, heck, we came, we've come a long way in that area. And people like yourself, one trainer, now we have a hundred, <laughs> you know, one strength and conditioning coach, maybe part time. And at, at Detroit, we have beside 11 or 12 medical people there every day, three of them are strength and conditioning coaches. So where we started and where we are now, uh, it's unbelievable the job you guys did, Tim Wilson, yourself, Bobby Medina, uh, Gil Reyes, uh, they were all there. But, you know, you, you were the stabilizer because you were, you were the trainer. That was it. We all went to you. You were a psychologist. <laughs> you were a, a, a priest or a sociologist. <laughs> now we, have, we hire all those people and in all the programs now. But you had to do all that. And uh, I think all the trainers through that, that time frame in the NBA and, and college basketball were, were that kind of person. They had to do everything. And uh, 
thank God you were there because we had a lot of guys who needed it. And a lot of guys who went to you with all their whatevers. And uh, I think it helped us. Yeah, it helped us tremendously. That's for sure. Well, I, I appreciate that, and oh, I know, man, and I and I believe me, Gerg. When I when I got to UNLV, you know, in my career, I I didn't work with a lot of basketball up until that time. You know, I I when I was at Iowa State, I worked with football. Uh, I did help coach Orr. Johnny Orr was the head coach at at Iowa State when I was there, and um, so I worked with Coach Orr's teams because one of his graduate students, a guy named Rick Wesley. And I were really good friends, so I would go over there and watch practice when I wasn't in football season, and uh, and I, I would always work Coach Orr's camps. But you know, when I when I came to UNLV, uh, that was really my first experience with basketball. And, and you're right, I I never will forget the first kind of introduction to our guys getting into the weight room was really. <laughs> You know, it's really something because those guys never lifted weights, and 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 a lot of them didn't want to. You know, and uh, so it was it was really an educational process, and you just kind of kind of learned as you go. You know, so it was uh, uh, it definitely was an educational experience for me as well, and I, and I of course enjoyed every bit of it. Well, the one thing for Timmy Wilson, uh, Sid Green was you know our All American that that year. He and Larry Anderson. And they had never lifted at all. And they were both inner city guys. And inner city guys at that time hardly ever saw a weight. And those two guys started his weight program. And from there on in, that's where we got started. Before that, Keith Clevin, uh, who had the sports academy uh, training program here in town, we'll go over and use his facilities. Because we had none. <laughs> we had yeah. none for the basketball. And thank God for Keith and Susie Hines, who was his assistant. You know, they put up with us during those years to help us out. You know, Sid Green, you know, it definitely helped him become a number one draft pick. That's for sure what Tim did. And you know that. You saw Sid for the first time that year. And he had a great career in the NBA. But all those little things, uh, they were our culture. You know, we had none. I mean, we had no, we didn't even have a locker room in our north and south gym was our practice facility. Guys would come to practice in their sweats and go home, take a shower <laughs> home. So yeah. I always laugh at everybody said, man, you guys must have had unbelievable things there. I said, no, we had, we had a convention center. Then we finally got Thomas and Mac and we had Coach Tark and great players. <laughs> that was the, that was the culture. Yeah, it it really was, and and you're right. It it was definitely uh, you know starting from the ground up for sure. But um, but again, I think with Coach Tark and you know that that whole era. I mean, Coach was very. I remember he always used to tell me because um, you remember when, when back then all the trends were starting. You know, people were doing all kind of different things, and you know, with nutrition and with health and with exercise and workouts and. Coach always used to say, I don't need more people to do less. You remember that? And so we always had kind of a, a close-knit group. And, you know, we just all worked together for one common goal. And, you know, whatever we needed to do, we just got it done. And we had a great community around us like people, you know, like Keith Clevin and the doctors that we had. I mean, they, you know, they were great. And, you know, Gerg, 
you know, one guy that I want to mention that fits that mold, and, and you know it very well, better than me, but Armin, Armin Gilliam. You know, when, gosh, when Armin came to UNLV in, in the, what, the 80, like the mid-80s, um, you know, Armin wasn't very good. Uh, he, he wasn't very physically strong. And I remember, you know, him getting into the weight room and he used to bug the crap out of me in the training room. He wanted to come in all the time and do leg lifts and leg extensions and leg curls. And I would do them with him manually. And I used to have to kick him out of the training room because <laughs> he wanted to be in there all day long. But and then, of course, with, you know, what you did with him on the court, you know, he went on to be one of the best players in the NBA for a number of years, you know. So uh, you're right. A lot of great athletes and the guys really bought into the system and they really bought into what you were trying to get them to do and what coach wanted them to do. And uh, so it, it was uh, it was a great time and a great learning experience for me, for sure. Well, coach, you bring up <laughs> the year before you came, uh, Coach Tayslock and uh, myself and Mark Working team were the assistants. And we didn't really have we, – we had a training program, which you know, but when we were in the gym, we worked those guys out with the, the defensive stuff, but we didn't have anything outside. And Coach Locke came in and put in the program that we did for 10 straight years. You, you know what I'm talking about. Outside, yep. running, running for about two weeks. And everybody participated in uh, Larry Chin, the equipment guy, the trainers, <laughs> coaches. We had fire hoses out there to squirt everybody down because it was end of August and it was still one I was going to say, that sounds like hell, making people run outside in August in Vegas. <laughs> well, right now we'd probably go to jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do. We'd probably go to jail. And, you know, everybody did it. It wasn't like, player couldn't complain, a coach couldn't complain, equipment guy, and we'd go out there together, and then after a while, we'd go into gym and do our conditioning in there, but uh, we had so many good people, and your comment about less is better than more, I think we should all use that now in all of our coaching throughout NBA, college, you name it. Uh, 15 coaches on the staff or, you know, 14 coaches in high school. Uh, you, you lose culture to me with that because you got too many people. And uh, my good friend up in Seattle, the old trainer up Frank Furtada, he, he liked the blues and he taught me about the blues and I had a song, Too Many Chefs Will Spoil the Stew. <laughs> we didn't have to worry about that because everybody had to do their own job. Yeah, my, my dad says that all the time. Too many chefs in the kitchen. <laughs> Absolutely right. And we didn't have yeah. that. We we never had that. And uh, I can remember guys like Larry Johnson. That's your favorite guy. Larry Johnson yeah. came in. He didn't want to do the conditioning. So, and, you know, you know how coach was with guys like Larry. Oh, Larry. You know, Larry was at the this or that. And we said, come on, coach. Everybody does this. In the first day... I can remember him falling down the hill. Oh, God. He run the hills. And guys <laughs> all picked him up and made him run the hill, and they were carrying him. And I'm like, yeah. hey, guys want to know what culture is or building the program. That, that, that's a foundation right there. 
Hey, I'll always remember that day. Made me laugh so hard. <laughs> oh, me too. Best player in the country that we recruited. He was the worst guy in our program. So. <laughs> <laughs> Coach Gerg, we told a story. Well, I think it was when we spoke with Everick on the show about how the one and only time Tark, Coach Tark yelled at Larry and everybody turned and said, Tark just yelled at Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Larry Larry was his guy, and Sid Green was his guy. And, hey, Coach took care of his guys, man. But he did. He would always say, hey, does he win games for us? Yes, he does. Yeah. <laughs> and you couldn't say anything back to Coach. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember, Gerg, the, I, I remember that day well, too, because – I remember you telling me, you know, I always used, if you remember, I used to, you know, mess with you guys in the recruiting, especially Coach Ganulin, because he'd always come up and tell me, oh, this player's great, this player's great. And I'd say, Ronnie, come on, man. I got to see him practice first before I see how great they are. I hear about all these great players, you know. I just was pulling his chain. And I remember saying that about Larry Johnson to you. I said, Greg, is he really that good? Come on, man. And you're like, hey, let me tell you what, he's really, really good. And then we get out there the first day and run, and he can't even run a lap. <laughs> that was true. He, he couldn't. It was true. I, I never. I remember that too. He could not make it, and the every. And that was the whole thing about that conditioning. We, you told the guys because I used to run with groups, and Larry Chin ran with groups, and I mean anybody was out there, you went ran with a group. And if your guys in your group couldn't make it, you had to pick them up and carry them or drag them to the finish line. And they were dragging Larry to the finish line. And I'm thinking, this is like our best player on the team. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That was funny. <laughs> hey, uh, Gerg. So I want to go back to something that you said about my dad. Like, everybody went to him. He was the guy. Well, we've heard that a lot about you from players and everybody saying – you were kind of the guy that, well, not only did players come to you and feel comfortable with you, but we had um, Dr. Oron, and he said, you know, Gerg was really the practice. He was in there practicing. He broke his nose twice. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of want to hear a little bit of that from your perspective, you know, just how, you know, you got really involved, kind of a little bit more of what it was like coaching with Jerry Tarkanian and kind of like you know, the whole experience during that era for you. Uh, everything that uh, Coach Jerry said about when he walked into Las Vegas, didn't know anybody uh, with Miss Annette and like looking around like, where the heck am I? And, you know, we had the same same thing happen to us. Well, I mean, we had two little kids at that time. And after about the first year, I said, man, if we can find another job, we better go. We don't know anybody. <laughs> this, is, this is like we, we're not getting anything done coaching and went on and on and on. But uh, one of the things that Coach did and, and, and Coach Jerry knows this and all the other coaches from Ronnie Ganlin to you name them, Ralph Readouts and Mark Working Teams that – the kids never went home, uh, and they stayed in Vegas the whole summer, and they worked out the whole summer. I mean, you never, you never had a day off. They were either out on the track in the middle of the summer. And, Jerry, you remember Elmore Spencer, right? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> I only wanted to run around noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. And I'll tell you what, man, we about died. Jerry and I about died. <laughs> and one day, one day we were like, man, I hope he don't show up today. God, I hope he don't come. And here comes oh, no. where he had this floppy hat on. And after about one lap, he went up to, to Jerry and said, Jerry, I just had a milkshake. I don't think I can make it today. It was, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds good, Elmore. <laughs> we'll, ta- we'll take off today. <laughs> we're the happiest guys ever but the running and you know coach stark was ahead of, you know they they call it player development now and back then it was just hard work and each guy getting better in the summertime and uh he was a master he he got guys to do it and he got guys to stay in vegas all year round and if they went if they went home we went to where they were and, and uh helped them work out there so he he was a master he was uh he knew exactly what he wanted. He knew exactly what they, he wanted for them. And uh, it was a good life in Las Vegas back then. And they, they, they appreciated it and they did what he asked them to do. Yeah. And, and Gerg, you know, the other thing that always sticks out to me too is, you know, Tark, you guys started that program. And, and I remember in the summertime, and we, you know, we'd be in there at like six o'clock, six thirty in the morning because it was so hot. And, uh, you know, the players would come in, the guys that were there, you know, you would take them out on the track, work them out, run them. But it also transformed, if you remember, you know, you ended up starting getting football players, volleyball players, track athletes. They all wanted to come to Gerg's workout. And you worked out a lot of guys and girls other than basketball players. You know, so you're right. It, it, you kind of started a player development program there before we even knew what the heck it was. <laughs> and, and those kids were very appreciative. I remember the, the, the young guy, God rest his soul. You remember Mike McDade, yep. he was a receiver and, uh, he didn't have a lot of speed, but a really, you know, really good receiver for us. And Mike McDade was out there every single day. And he used to tell me a lot of the credit, you know, that he, uh, gave was to you. Uh, about his football career just by that conditioning. He he said he'd never been in any better shape in his life than he was coming out there working out with you in the summertime. Well, Jerry, you had, the biggest kick I got out of you is when Icky Woods came out and joined us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Icky Woods was a classic and went on to be one heck of an NFL player, but he would be doing the icky shuffle back then out on the track, and we'd be yelling at him, what the heck are you doing? Are you nuts? <laughs> I mean, those guys were out there, and, and Megan, you said something, and Jerry will remember this. Our, our practices at UNLV were better than the games. I mean, if I, I would never, if I was a fan, I would have never went to a game. I would have just went to watch the practices, and you know, we would be in there, guys like Clee Edwards and Keystar uh, would all be in there, myself, whoever was young enough to go out there or in good enough shape. And one day, Chris Jeter hit me so hard, that's how I met Dr. Orr. <laughs> I had a hose in my nose for about three days. <laughs> so, hey, everybody, everybody got dirty and everybody was in there. And uh, I, I just hope that the people who get stopped by 
Chris Jeter, since he's a Metro motorcycle policeman, they don't give him any kind of trouble because he might have been the toughest guy we ever had. Uh, Chris Jeter, Gerg, is you. I mean, he probably could have played and started anywhere else in the country. Yep. I mean, he was a big physical specimen and a good player. He just happened to be playing behind guys like Larry Johnson and those kind of guys, but he was a hell of a basketball player and and very very strong. And I I remember Gerg taking you over to Doctor Orr. We we talked about this with Doctor Orr, and you know I just was taking you over there because you know you were you were in a lot of pain, but I, but then Doctor Orr wanted me to come in and watch, and I'm like <laughs> I don't. I don't want to watch that, but he made me come in and and I remember him I remember him watching putting your nose back in place, man. That was the weirdest thing I had ever seen during my training room years at that point in time, you know. <laughs> oh god, that was funny. Well, coach, the biggest thing there is and it was like Greg Anthony was, of course was the best of this. He broke his jaw. And the next night he came to practice with a football helmet on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what coach expected. Like, I can remember going to practice the next day and I'm like, I got this thing dangling on my nose, but you you didn't dare miss. <laughs> you just didn't no. Miss, you didn't miss practice, <laughs> man. That was just, that was part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. We told that whole story about Greg Anthony a couple times too. That is wild. Like, that, that, you know, and there's one point when during a game, my dad, you know, Dr. Orr was sitting on the bench and I'm obviously, I'm sure you remember all this too, but the doc, you know, we talked to him and during a game one time he had his mouth wired shut and my dad was saying like, yeah, during a game, someone knocked him and the wires came out and Dr. Orr took him off 15 seconds later, had his mouth rewired shut and sent him back on the court. <laughs> hey, Dr. Orr was amazing because... And Jerry, you know this, you were involved in it. Like most people break their jaw and they're wired, you know, they're eating with a straw the whole time. And hey, Dr. Orr would take the wires off, put food into them, put them back on, and he'd go about his business. And uh, (laughs) not many guys could do what that kid did. That was uh, something to be seen. Hey, that's who they were. And, uh, you know, everybody talks, like we talked earlier about, I go into the locker room and said, if we do this, we're going to set a foundation for the future and culture that. And to me, you know, that's all BS. <laughs> Half the guys yeah. don't read it and they could care <laughs> less. So, but those kids, like you said before, Coach Chair, 10 years of basketball that you only dream about. Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, Gerg, you look at, I was telling somebody this one day, when I got to U Albany, I was telling our basketball coach there, actually. I mean, in that 10 years, Coach Tark, that, that I was there, um, you know, his, his, it, we were 307 and 42. I mean, that's like just ridiculous numbers when you think about it. That's 30 wins a year and average four losses a year, of, you know, in, in a 10-year streak. And in the conference – those 10 years, we only lost 18 games, had had three years being undefeated in the conference, two years we had one loss, four years we had two losses, and only one year we had more than three losses in the conference. I mean, 
you the, you can't get those kind of numbers today, and I don't think anybody could ever match those numbers. It was just a hell of a run, man, and it was a, a, certainly for me a great part. Uh, you know, met a, a lot of great people, a lot of great coaches, and um, you know, certainly the student athletes made it all worthwhile. So those were some fabulous years, and and like I said when I started, if it wasn't for you, kind of the same way you came to Vegas. I told Annette the same thing. I said, listen, don't worry. We're, we're, I'm only going to be here a couple years, and then we're getting the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know what? The longer you stay in Las Vegas, the longer you're going to be here. You find out that the real people in Las Vegas are tremendous people. Uh, that's the thing that always impressed me. That, And you grew up in the coal mines of West Virginia, and you know, we grew up in the steel mills in Pittsburgh where you guys shipped the coal to. <laughs> and those people were just hard, tough, good people. And you come out here, 24 hours a day, the industry is is going. And when you get to meet all those people, they were very similar, very similar to what I had in Pittsburgh or what you had in West Virginia. And, you know, I can't say enough about, they were part of our culture. They were part of loyalty and and discipline and sticking up for each other. When you'd be around there, that industry, you realize how important that was. But they, we had the best fans. I mean, I, everybody has all these students and all that kind of stuff coming again. We didn't have many students. We had about 18, 19,000 people and 500 were students. Yeah. The rest were the locals and man, they, they were, they were just tremendous people. They just, that's why it was hard to leave. I mean, I, I would never leave it. <laughs> I just yeah. feel like it's my home. And uh always felt <laughs> Pittsburgh was my home, but this is the same, very much the same. Yeah. So, Gerg, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, that was several years ago. And, and for the both of us, you know, we've, you know, went, went different paths. When, when you left UNLV, you went into the NBA. Now, I remember, and and I, you got to correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you and I having a conversation one day in your office at the Thomas and Mac, and we were talking about the NBA because I think there were some NBA scouts visiting with with uh, Mark Workentine at the time, and 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 I I had asked you, I said, Gerg, you, you ever think about going in the NBA? And you said at the time. Nah, you know, that, that's really not my game. And I love the college game. I, I love developing these young kids and so forth. And then after you left UNLV, you go into the NBA and you become one of the, the greatest assistants in the NBA. So how, how did that transformation go for you? And, and how did, you know, you adapt to, to going into the NBA from college and having the success that you've had in the NBA. Um, and for our listeners, and I, and I want to make sure I, I touch on this, in 2018, Gerg, you were named the Tex winner, assistant coach, lifetime impact, uh, the assistant coach, lifetime impact award, uh, which is basically the, the award for the, the best assistant coach in the NBA over the course of your career. And one of the guys that you worked with, Rick Carlisle, right, with the Dallas Mavericks, he said, and I quote, based upon his impact on our game, meaning the NBA, 
He's the greatest assistant coach in the history of the NBA, and it's not even close. So tell me a little bit about that, because, you know, once you left UNLV, you and I stayed in touch and we've talked, but, you know, we were distanced apart. You were in the NBA. I was still in college uh, and and I never really got to see a lot of your games or, or you know, practices and things like that. But how did that go and, and, and how did you make that transformation? Uh, fear. <laughs> fear and survival would be the two words I would use because, you know, after uh, we lost to Duke, which was a life-changing game for a lot of us at UNLV, careers, life-changing careers. And then the second, the year after we were already fired before the season started, we all knew that. And yeah. survival needed a job. Uh, college coaches, we made enough money to, to live a good life in Vegas, but not, not enough to survive always. Uh, so that was it. And George Carl uh, just took the job at Seattle. And I knew George from when we both grew up in Pittsburgh, played together, uh, worked, worked a lot in the summer times. And, uh, you know, he asked me to come up and, you know, try it. It was only about two months ago in the season when we got let go at UNLV. So I did, and uh, it was fear. I had no idea what I was getting into, just like when we came to Las Vegas, you and I, you had no idea what you're getting into. And uh, I think the one thing that happened there was both George Carl and Bob Kloppenberg very much coached like Jerry Tarkanian. So it was uh, that was the easiest transition I had. What they did, we were already doing at UNLV, or what we were doing at UNLV, they were already doing. Uh, if we would have got fired at UNLV and Coach Stark would have stayed for 10 or 15 more years, I would have did that, no doubt in my mind. Uh, to me, I found what I, what I wanted, and you know, he as a head coach, people like yourself and Brad Rothermill and all the coaches, and players that we had, they were all responsible for our success. And uh, I didn't really need to be anywhere else. But, uh, you know, our coach, we, they had great players at Seattle. And George said one thing that was kind of, he said, just do what you did at UNLV. <laughs> so, George, what do you want me to do? I don't even know. I don't know a single soul. And I'm sitting on an NBA bench two days after I left UNLV. and and these guys are – these are old, tough guys back then compared to now. But, you know, it worked out. Uh, Coach Kloppenberg, Bob Witsit, and George Carl were great to me. Bob Witsit was the president and general manager. Uh, Mark Workentine joined us, thank goodness. That helped me out. And uh, just followed George's lead, really, and we won. If you win, it, it makes everything a lot better. So, but I really didn't want to do it. Wouldn't have done it. And uh, once there, it's even till this day, it's still survival for me because on a given day, you don't know what's going to happen in the NBA. Expect the unexpected because one kid gets hurt or this happens or that happens. And uh, things change in the NBA now with the medical stuff. And uh, 
the owners, with the young general manager. So everything, you just got to go along with the flow. And uh, but didn't want to do it, but had to do it or where I'd been working uh, for Republic Sanitation in one of those places. <laughs> uh, Gerg, so what, what's the main difference for you that you noticed from working in collegiate athletics to working in the NBA pr- with professional athletes and coaches and politics? And what's kind of the whole di- the differences that you noticed between the two? Oh, man, that's a great question, Megan. I mean, that's a probably take all day to try to answer all that. Uh, I only knew one thing, the college life. Looked to a little bit of high school before I did college. Uh, you know, you said some of the things, politics, uh, you know, racial strife, social strife. In college, you're dealing with younger kids. And uh, Coach Chair, you remember this as you were a young kid in high school, but late 60s when I started coaching and early 70s, all through the 70s, uh, like we had this past year or two, the racial injustice and racial equality, uh, man, that might have been the worst time of my life trying to be a coach and a teacher and understand everything that was going on from the riots in the city to the south. Uh, if you lived in the north, you had no idea what was going on in the south as a young kid. And, uh, you know, now we just we just had it another experience with it and uh hopefully you know one of these days we'll figure it out i probably won't see it but will but i thought college had all its tough things and but you were in one place and i kind of like that i like with the young kids we had and uh going to the nba it's the travel the players the money the agents uh, so they both have, they both have their problems. They both have their good things, uh, but you still have to form a trust uh, with each other. You have to have the loyalties and the disciplines that you had in college. You got to have in the NBA in order to win and or be successful. And the trust of the player, the trust between the coaches and the players is. Uh, it's hard to explain how important it is. Relationships like Jerry had at UNLV, the same thing in the NBA. Uh, so many people now, you, it's, it's a lot different. But when we first came into the NBA, uh, you had to be who you are with a player. And they know they were grown men. They know when you were either BSing them or you know, I'm not being honest. <laughs> Very simple words that if you don't do that, you're not going to be successful. Yeah, I, I you know, Gerga, <clears throat> I know um, all the years you spent there. I mean, you know, one of the things that the article about when you won the Tex Winter Award, uh, you're the guy that really went into the NBA and kind of started the you know, the, the pregame stuff where it became more of a, a developmental phase as opposed to just going out and shooting around and, 
and all that, you know, because like you said, the schedule they have, the travel you have to do, um, it's probably pretty easy. And, and again, I don't know, you, you know, but it's probably pretty easy to get complacent when you're a great athlete like that. And you just, you know, maybe take a day off or you, you don't work as hard the next day because, you know, you got another game coming up, but you went in there and kind of, you know, started that whole kind of player development program there as well. And I think uh, the article that I read was when you was with Milwaukee, um, the center there was Henson or Hanson, John Henson was a big center, right? Mm -hmm. And he, he said, and I think I could, yeah, here it is. He said that you, Gerg is a big voice for me. He's always with the bigs. He breaks down film. His perspective is almost always brutally honest, which is great. He's going to tell you how it is. And I think, you know, because over the 10 years that I worked with you, you and LV, I I think that was the biggest trait that I, I took from you is how honest you were with the players and, and how much they respected you for that honesty. Because like you said, well, you know, another great player we had, J.R. Ryder. Um, <laughs> and, and I know you laugh, but you're the only guy that I think could have thrown J.R. Ryder out of the conditioning drills. If you remember, you did that when he came because he wouldn't work hard. And you just told him to, you know, you're not going to condition with me until you work harder. And, and I think Jr. always respected that, you know. And uh, so I always looked at that as being one of your greatest traits is you were always honest with the player, good or bad, and they really respected you for that. Well, you're being very kind today, Coach and Megan. <laughs> you're picking out all the good points. You're not picking out that I came back to UNLV and made a fool out of myself. Uh, Might have been the biggest fool in a, uh, ever in the country. <laughs> biggest mistake I probably made for myself, but that's the way things go. They say you make mistakes to get yourself better. Uh, you know, Rick Carlisle's always been a, a friend ever since he was a young coach in the league, and we worked for Coach Knoll, who was a big part of our program too from an outside standpoint. Uh, you know, and we were together when he won the championship down in Dallas. So, you know, we spent some special time together. Uh, you, you made a, a really good point, Meg and, and Jerry, about going into the league. Both George Carl and I he looked at each other and said, how, how do we get our guys better? What do we do? We have a lot of young guys. What do we do? <laughs> George, I don't know. You've been in the league for longer than me. What, what did you do? He said, well, we didn't work with the guys that much, or we didn't do this, we didn't do that. I said, what? Only way we can find out is if we do it, what, what do you want to do? So that whole summer, <laughs> we spent the whole time with the players all summer just, you know, working with them, seeing them, talking to them, going to where they lived and all. We didn't know. We were. It, it was like you couldn't go to a library and get any kind of book. You couldn't go to anybody and say, hey, what did you guys do? <laughs> it was like we were on our own. And we started a camp, and we had no idea what we were doing at the camp to start. It was trial and error, and, hey, let's try this, let's try that. And uh, 
it was it was it was just kind of interesting experience if you ever wrote it out and talked about it. And until this day, when we're together, George and I, we just kind of laughed. Said, "Gert, we we were survivors, or we were we were scared we were going to get fired, or but we knew we had to try to get the players better." I said, "That's the only thing we knew. That's the only thing we said." But uh, it was. I mean, I, I, I really can't explain it to you, uh, Jeremy Megan. It's, they call it player development. All I look back is what we did at UNLV and what I saw Coach Noel do all the time at his camp. Just go out there with him and you teach fundamentals and you touch him and you feel him and uh, try to try to get, get them where they believe in themselves and you believe in them and they believe in you. So, but Coach, I... You know, if I had to write out a paper on why it worked, I, I really couldn't do it. <laughs> I really couldn't do it. Well, just, well you, you did you did it pretty well, so. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully someday you can write a book or something. <laughs> and yeah. then somebody can go to a library and look it up. But um, I have, so at the beginning of the show, we were talking about, um, you know, your interview. And uh, our producer, Chase, brought something up that's kind of cool. You were hired by Mark Cuban with the Mavericks. Is that correct? That's correct. That's pretty cool. <laughs> okay. What do you guys mean by that's really cool? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know the guy. I, I've only seen him on like Shark Tank or whatever. But I mean, he's pretty famous. Probably not a bad ally to have if he's your ally i don't know <laughs> well mark cuban's a pittsburgh guy too right Gerg? yeah he's a pittsburgh guy and uh i think he started at the university of pittsburgh then transferred to indiana where he finished uh if you look up his success he started from ground zero sleeping on a couch and someone's living room because he didn't have any money after he graduated and got started but very good owner. Uh, really sad what happened down there a couple of days ago with uh, two really, really good friends and very good professional people, uh, Don Nelson and Rick Carlisle, both stepping down from their jobs. But over the yeah. years, uh, Mark Cuban is one of the great owners that we have in the league. And uh, I, ca I can't say enough about him. He, he's a, he was a very... Uh, professional man with me, very honest, uh, gave me a job for two years. And I think any of those guys, any of those owners that give you a job in the NBA for two, three or four years and pay you, no matter what, how it ends up, you got to be thankful because they're, they are good jobs. I think he runs one heck of a program in, in Dallas and he's a good man. He's a been, he was a good man to me. And I saw him when he was a good man to a lot of people. And then like any owner or any businessman, I think there's come some hard times uh, that he has mm -hmm. to deal with you or his business or whatever. But uh, I can't say enough about him. Uh, it was, uh, I was fortunate. I went, first year I went down there, they won a championship. And I'm like, God dang, which <laughs> is what happened every year. <laughs> well, if you uh, if you have a contact and Mark Cuban wants to come on our podcast, we wouldn't say no to that. <laughs> uh, you know what? Yeah. He's the kind of guy yeah. that if you ever have to text text him or email him, 
you have to pick your, your point in time. But the one thing I've, I've never texted him in all the years I was 2011. Uh-huh. The next day <laughs> you get a text back. Love it. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. Awesome. You can send him a two let two word text and he, he hits you back either that day or the next day. It, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I just kind of, I'm amazed with who he is. Because to me, he could be the president of the United States. He's a guy that, you know, you could support. And he he's for people. He is really for people. He makes mistakes. He makes a lot of mistakes like we all do. But he's for people. And he's for the country and doing the things the right way. No, he always, to me, you know, just looking at him and how he operates, he seems like a great guy. It would be a great guy to, you know, work with in an organization and like, you know, you said, Gerg, you went there and, and your first year you get an NBA championship. I mean, because he's a good owner and, you know, he, he does it the right way. And, and uh, that's the kind of people you want to be around for sure, you know. So. Hey, Meg, he's around the team. It's really interesting. If, if he's in town, which is a lot when we play, play at home, he works, out the whole, he works out before the game for at least an hour and a half. Shooting hoops, working out, you name it. He loves shooting hoops. Yeah, he looks <laughs> like he works out. Yeah, he loves shooting hoops. And, you know, he'll have guys in the country that are, you know, famous guys who come in to see him from, you know, whatever, movie stars or business people. And they all come down at night when they're in town and shoot hoops at our practice facility. It's incredible. That's awesome. I, I just kind of laugh. Like we, we pre- like at night, we always come back and work with the guys. And these guys will come in and play hoops all night. And I'm like, God damn. <laughs> Hard to believe yeah, that they, lo- they love hoops. But Awesome. Love it. Hey, uh, Gerg, let me uh, – uh, sticking with guys in the NBA, and I know one of your guys, George Carl, I, I don't know if you've ever known this – you probably didn't know this story, but so you remember there was a time – and I'm I'm terrible with years, but there was a big push in Vegas for George to be the next head coach. And yes. remember that? So Mike Hamrick, I think, yeah, Mike was the athletic director. And um, so we interviewed George and we went, he was in Vegas. We went to a hotel. I think it was the MGM, actually. We interviewed him at, at his hotel. And uh, I I remember, you know, talking about, player development and working out and all this stuff. And one of the things I, I, I never will forget is Mike was talking about, you know, the NC2A and the rules and all that about the 20 hour a week rule. You know, you can, guys can only, you can only practice for 20 hours a week. And I remember the look on George's face when he said that, cause you know, he, he, you know, he obviously didn't know that rule. And he's like, well, what do you mean you can only work guys out 20 hours a week? And well, then, you know, that's, that's it, George. And that counts from the time they're on the court to off and meetings and all that kind of stuff. But it was just kind of funny, the difference, the mentality that you, you get, you know, in the NBA where you really have access to these guys as much as you want and as much as they want, as opposed to like in college where, you know, you got to pull the reins in and you can only do so much now as compared to when you were at UNLV many years ago, you know. So how times have changed as we got older, you know, and and, and certainly I don't know if it's good or bad, but it certainly uh, 
was kind of interesting when when I, I men never will forget the look on George's face. <laughs> George has always been since I've known him a gym rack. I mean he he would play yeah. all day, play indoor, outdoor all day when he was young and North Carolina would just like we were at UNLV or any program like that from you know, all those top programs, Louisville's back then, UCLA. I mean, no one cared about time. Time was a yeah, no one even cared about time. Yeah. The NBA, I think now they're starting to do it because we have, you know, analytics and research and uh, load management and all the words that we use. Uh, and now you you think about time. Before there was, time was whatever. Yeah. It, it just wasn't there. And, you know, you had 24 hours to do whatever you wanted to do with your guys and, and and you did it in George's. <laughs> I would, I would think he would have said, "Is well, shit, I ain't gonna do that. Yeah, <laughs> no way I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna figure out a way to do it." And he would have, you know. And that was when when I went up with George, and he was. It was almost like UNLV coach and Meg that our trainer was like you. Frank Furtado was Jerry Kowalski. Equipment <laughs> guy, Mark. He was like Larry Chen. Video guy, you know, Paul Wolper. And they were, they were there all night. I mean, they, were, they would never leave. So when a guy would come back in to work out at night or do whatever he wanted to do, they were there. I mean, they didn't even think about it. You didn't have to tell them. You know, the trainers were invaluable to me in the NBA because and the strength and conditioning coaches, Bobby Medina, Steve Hess, those kind of guys, because they know the players. You go to a new program, and you go right to them and say, "Hey, you know more than I do. How do we, how do we get this guy better? Or, you know, what are some of the things he's gonna, whatever about?" But that was that was your job, Larry Chen, uh, Tim Wilson, Bobby Medina, you know, Crazy Gil Reyes. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Gil was like in his own world, and hey, made himself made himself a great tennis guy. Yeah. You guys were part of it, and uh, if you don't have that kind, if you don't have those guys on your staff, you can't win. Impossible, totally impossible to win. Well, I think too, like you know, going back from is it good or bad from back then to now, and how you know the hours and time. I think it's just it's just never going to be the same. Like basketball and sport, you know, it's just never going to be the same as it was back then because of all of the new rules. And, you know, they're, they probably are there for a reason. Like you said, there's research to support those things and whatnot. And I don't think it's, you know, good or bad. I just think it's, it's just different now. You know, there's never going to be a team like UNLV back in those, those times. Well, Meg, I, the whole world, uh, Think about when you first, your dad start started out, or when I started out in, in the late '60s, uh, and where it is now. Uh, everything has changed, and it's it's never going to be the same. You have to, as a coach, you have to change with it and adjust to it. And if you don't, you're pretty much hurting yourself and hurting uh, what you teach in the game. Mm-hmm. What we taught. 30 years ago, we're not game. The game has changed. A three point shot has changed everything. 
back in the late 60s, early 70s, there, there weren't teams that had five starters who were African-American kids. There weren't any. And that was when the, the change started, late 60s, early 70s, late 70s. Teams started changing, and uh, a lot of people couldn't figure it out. I think, hey, Coach Jerry, we were lucky. We had guys like Clee Edwards, Key Star, and I was older guy, Mel Bennett, that, you know, grew up in that era. And then our players who were – we had a lot of gang guys from L.A. on our teams. And, you know, I didn't know that culture. They – guys like Stacy Ogman, Greg, yeah. Mark Wade, and those guys all, all helped us with that. I mean, they would take you around and show you what you have to learn and what you have to do. Hell, I, I wasn't that smart. I mean, you, you learn from experience. And I think right now that's what's hard. A lot of these – the guys don't go into the neighborhoods like they used to. Right. Go make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. You're not going to go in there and correct things. And, you know, and the, and the same thing with the law enforcement. Our law enforcement has to change. Mm-hmm. They have to change for everybody. But I don't know whether they'll do it or not, but – Yeah, I think I think it's like you said, like, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but every you have to, you know, learn and you have to grow and you have to adapt. And that's just, you know, something that I think our society needs to work on as a whole, for sure. Well, it's there. It's right in front of us. And And everybody's going to learn on this podcast. (laughs) It's Life Lessons with Tim Gergerich. You know know what I mean, Meg? It's. You could live in, you know, if you live in Montana, you know, some of those places, you have a whole different lifestyle than if you're living in cities. Definitely. You know, when they vote, uh, when they pass judgment on things, you know, they don't, they're they're not experienced. I'm not experienced. I don't have a damn thing I know about Montana, Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota. They drop me off there. I'd be like dropping (laughs) me off in Las Vegas again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah you know i don't know the cultures now and all this they drop you off in a city neighborhood somewhere and you're okay figure it out Woo. right be very difficult yep definitely definitely the only way you do it is is you do it and you know you'll make a whole lot of mistakes and have some successes mm-hmm. but I, I, the wonderful world of athletics gives you an opportunity to be with these kids and to see their life and to hopefully be a part of it. To me, that was like, and you know, this year, that's probably one of the better parts of coaching and teaching, uh, being around these kind of kids. And some make it, some don't. And you kick yourself in the rear end for the ones who don't. You get excited about the kids that do it. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm not a politician by any means. I don't even try to be. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, the, the perspective is valuable for sure, you know, and, and I think everything is everything is definitely relative. And we talk a lot about how college sports and sports in general, you know, a lot of the the perspective we get from coaches and administrators that can translate into, you know, your everyday life and becoming a successful person. So, you know, the perspective, re- you know, regardless is valuable for sure. But um. Gerg, we really, really appreciated having you on the show. Yes, <laughs> Gerg, it's it's been great, and I've I've been looking forward to this 
for a long time. Um, actually, I I, uh, I told Megan, I said, you know, now keep in mind, Megs, Coach Gerg didn't even like to be in team photos. So I, I said, I'm not sure I could get him on our podcast. And I bugged him to ask. I said, just ask him. It'll be fun. And here you are. So we're really glad he asked, and we're really glad you accepted. Well, yeah. I tried to throw out a lot of good people. Uh, and I, I missed a lot of good people, but I, if there is any success in my, you know, coaching career is really being around great, great coaches, trainers, weight training people and players. I've been very fortunate to be around some unbelievable people in my lifetime. And, and can I leave you with one story? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. This had, this is Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm -hmm. 1969, I believe. When it happened, uh, all the cities in the United States were burning. Detroit, L.A., on down the line. And it was a Sunday in Pittsburgh, Saturday and a Sunday, that the area that was called the Hill District where Clee Edwards grew up. Yep. Totally on fire. And uh, we had a bunch of kids on our team at Pitt it grew up in that neighborhood one time or another, and they all came up to the, to the field house and said, "Can we go over to over to where they're burning the city?" We went, and you're standing there with these kids, and you're looking at their homes, and you're just kind of like, Fuck, "What can you do?" All you can do is stand there with them can't talk to them, you can't say much, but you just stand there with them. And they're looking at their homes and their places, their environment, and it's gone. You know, and uh, <laughs> next day, uh, they finally, we're going to, they're coming up, picking them up for class, taking the class. Pitt Stadium, it was 80,000. And in that stadium was, they had all the National Guard, and reserve units with all those the the stuff they use now machine guns and tanks and you <laughs> name it and these guys are going girl what are they going to kill us <laughs> they're, they're going to come and kill us so I'm like <laughs> stories like that you you can't go out and explain that to people you just have you live it and you try to learn from it yeah, that's that's crazy that, you know, how old were you during that time? Oh, man, I was about, I don't know, I just got out of college. I was about 23 or 24. Wow. Like I tell Wild. my grandson, I didn't even know how to blow my nose then. So, <laughs> remember yeah. that, Jerry? That's what your mom and dad would tell you. God dang, you're trying to make, you don't even know how to blow your nose yet. Come on. That's exactly. Yeah, that's, that's they, intense. They Billy Knight, who played in the NBA, you know, he was there, Marvin. Yeah, it was a group of our guys, and they all uh, they all gathered, and you know nothing we could do, just kind of live it, go over and help people. Yeah, and but learn from it. I know. Yeah, I thank you guys, Megan. You're beautiful. <laughs> I haven't seen you in many, many years. If I was walking down the street, we'd both pass pass each other up. Yeah, I love your dad. I know he's upset with me a lot of times in my career. <laughs> wanted to beat me up along with Clee Edwards, but that's that was the part of the love that we had at UNLV. You couldn't uh, you couldn't break our circle. Yeah, definitely.
Well, and it shows now. I mean, you guys are all still close, and my dad keeps in touch with everybody, so definitely a tight bond. We were fortunate, and we were blessed, Meg. I'll tell you what. That's a great word for us. But thank you, guys. You guys have a good day. Hey, Jer, I'm going to come up here and go for a ride on your boat. You need to come up here anytime. You're welcome. I need to come up there. I have a bucket list of everybody I got to see. And I'm going to buy Perfect. one of these crazy old cars and drive it all across the country <laughs> and go see everybody. Yeah. I, I definitely look forward to it. Hey, Jer. Yeah. If your mom was here, what would she be making? Pepperoni rolls. Pepperoni, Pepperoni rolls. Pepperoni <laughs> rolls, yeah. <laughs> Hi, Jerry. All right. Great episode. Coach Gerg, what a throwback. He's awesome. Yeah, it was really good. I uh, obviously utmost respect for him and and uh, what he's accomplished throughout his career uh not only UNLV but in the NBA so it was, it was good to catch up and and I think for our listeners a really good episode cuz without question he's one of the best coaches in the country yep definitely and uh we'll be back next week with another great guest sounds good have a good week everybody Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, Wherever you're streaming this podcast, if you would be so kind as to give us a subscribe and maybe even a review. In addition, you can find us for any updates on social media, Facebook or Instagram. Our handle is at Cuddy and the Cooge. Cuddy with a C, Cooge with a K. Or you can email any questions or submit any feedback to Cuddy and the Cooge at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.